Nighthawks presents Hello everyone and welcome back to Nighthawks, the show that is sure to keep you up at night. I'm your host, Johnny, and today we're taking a look at Perfect Blue, a 1997 anime film directed by Satoshi Kon. Uh, It's a psychological thriller about Mima, a pop idol who, after changing careers, fears a stalker and her alter ego who may be killing off her new employers. A fair warning, not only will I be spoiling Perfect Blue in this week's episode, but I also will be talking about some touchy subjects such as suicide, so the listener's discretion is advised. Now, before we actually get into the plot synopsis, I just wanted to give some background information, just so we're a little, um, just so we have a little bit of context before we actually uh, get into the film. Uh, so, Perfect Blue actually debuted as a novel titled "Perfect Blue: Complete Metamorphosis." Um, now, what's interesting is that uh, uh, while they were making this, um, Satoshi Kon, the director, he actually uh, talked to the author, and the author actually gave um, um, his. Uh, his approval on a few changes that they made because of course the the book is um not necessarily vastly different from the movie but there are a lot of differences um but the author of course approved on them so that's actually kind of interesting a lot of authors wouldn't uh or most of the time they just don't um What's interesting is that uh, Perfect Blue, the movie, both, or if anything more, the movie, it's categorized as contextual horror. And what contextual horror is, is pretty much it's horror that uses the modern day and the society that people are living in now as a as a way or a tool as, or an outlet to uh, express this horror. In this case, it was the rising in popularity of pop idols and the horrible uh, things that they have to go through. Um, and we'll be, of course, that's what we'll be t- uh, talking about in today. It's it's not only just about the movie, but also just about the, con- the, the, the context and what exactly the movie is trying to say about um, pop idol uh, culture and just the culture of Japan, probably. Now, the book was a lot more gory, especially in the end, and it delved deeper into the characters, uh, a lot more into the characters of Mima, the main character, and the stalker character, also known as um, Mimania. It's an interesting book, and it is as haunting as the movie. Both are really great, and I recommend you read the book before we get into the movie, but today I actually wanted to just focus on the movie. Um... Not necessarily just the book, but I it's still a high recommendation. Uh, I recommend reading it. I recommend watching the movie. If you guys haven't, uh, go see those before I spoil anything else. Uh, but it's it's really great. Um, and uh, let's uh, continue on with a little bit of context here. Now, the movie adaptation was supposed to be a live-action film, but because of an earthquake in Kobe that destroyed the production company's offices, they actually had to animate it because of budget cuts. It's pretty interesting because it's quite the opposite now but um but it's actually good that they did because the cinematography and the camera direction and the iconic art style worked so well with the animation that it just couldn't have worked with or just would have been very difficult with live action i'm, I'm very glad that it ended up as an anime film or an animated film i think it, it gives it um it, it's it's a lot more of an icon <sighs> to be a little ironic here it's a little iconic 
uh, in the uh, anime film and the horror industry. It's just it's very interesting. All right, now let's actually get into what the movie is about because you, we can't just start analyzing everything about the movie before you even know who the characters are, what, what goes on to them. All, all you know is that there's a person and she was a pop idol and then she stopped, right? So let's just... Um, talk about the actual film so uh this synopsis is f- uh, straight from wikipedia i i read it and i think it's a it's a really really good you know synopsis so why change it or anything like that i think i think it's great and i think it gets j- uh, the job done so let's start with our main character mima kirigoe and she is a pop idol from the j-pop group cham and she decides to leave the group to become an actress her first project is a drama series called double blind some of her fans are upset by her change in careers and persona not least the stalker known as Mimania, a frightening-looking man whose real name is revealed to be Uchiha. Shortly after leaving Cham, Mima receives an anonymous fax calling her a traitor. Mima finds a website called Mima's Room that has public diary entries which seem to be written by her discussing her life in great detail. She confides in her manager, Rumi Hidaka, about the site. However, she is just advised to just ignore it. Meanwhile, on the set of Double Blind, Mima succeeds in getting a larger part. The producers have agreed to give her a leading role, however, it is as a rape victim in a strip club. Rumi warns that it will ruin Mima's reputation, but Mima accepts the part voluntarily. Though it is apparent that Mima is indecisive, the atmosphere of the scene traumatizes her so that she is increasingly becomes unable to separate reality from fantasy. She can no longer distinguish her real life from her work in show business. Several people who have been involved in the tarnishing of Mima's reputation are murdered. She finds evidence which makes her appear to be the prime suspect, as her increasing mental instability makes her doubt her own innocence. And it turns out that the diarist of Mima's room is delusional and very manipulative, and that an intense folie à deux has been in play. The faux diarist and serial killer, who believes herself to be a Mima who is forever young and graceful, has made a scapegoat of stalker Mimania. Mima kills Mimania with a hammer in self-defense when he attempts to rape her and runs to her only support when she is left alive, her manager Rumi. When Mima encounters Rumi, however, her manager is wearing a replica of Mima's cham costume and crazily singing Mima's pop songs. Rumi is in fact the false diarist, who believes that she is the quote-unquote real Mima. Rumi is angry that Mima has been ruining the real Mima's reputation and decides to save quote-unquote Mima's pristine pop idol image through the same means that she has been using all along, murder. Mima manages to incapacitate Rumi in self-defense after a chase through the city despite being wounded herself. Rumi remains permanently delusional and institutionalized. Mima has grown from her experiences and has moved on with her life and found new independence and confidence. Now let's get a little bit into the analysis of the film before we start talking about idol culture. Now. Uh, a big part of uh, what this what makes this film just so interesting is, of course, its play on perception, what is real and what is not. Now, Mima is seen questioning her own reality throughout the entire film. I mean, it just, it, there's, it's very apparent, and it gets a lot more crazier at the very end of the film. But in the beginning, you can tell there's there's little there's little hints and and whatnot that she is. Um, thinking that her life is perfect and her life is nice and she's this Mima character and there's other times where she looks vulnerable and that's when the image 
of this perfect life starts to fall apart. And it's shown interestingly with color theory. There's the reds, the blues, the greens, overexposure in some of the lighting sequences in the movie. It, it, uh, let's start with the very beginning, of course. Uh, I mean, even with the colors of, of the Cham characters, you know, they're all wearing whites and very light pinks, and, and, it's, and it's supposed to symbolize this kind of pure and perfect-looking girl. And all these girls, of course, or all, all, all the fans, of course, look up to her and look up to Cham and are, you know, just infatuated with them. They're just like, oh my god, these girls are just, you know, they're so pure, they're so perfect. And that's pretty much what the J-pop and K-pop uh, community basically live off that uh, that's kind of what um is the appeal of j-pop and k-pop is this is just this this girl or, or this guy or whatever um that the that the fans listen to is just this pure very beautiful girl who could do nothing wrong and has a perfect life and so you just kind of follow them and you know worship them because that's what they are they're idols so but I just think that um, just that kind of use of color that they're just so nice and vibrant, yet everything around them is this dull blue and this dull green. I just think that's just so fascinating, that contrast, because as much as they want to perceive themselves this way, they are always surrounded by the truth. They are always surrounded by discomfort with the blues and the greens and i just think that's just it's just so interesting and of course there's the big motif of blue which is pretty much everywhere which basically just represents if anything just reality and then there's the overall red and i think the red might in my opinion represent not only just psychosis but uh it may sound crazy uh, but i think it might represent love um and not necessarily the good love. I think it, um, obviously there's different types of love and uh, there's there's a whole YouTube video about it. I might link it down in the description if you guys are interested in it, but it basically delves deeper into the symbolism of love in the movie. Uh, but I think that with red symbolizing this love, I think it's more of a psychotic love, this kind of love that just envelops you and just kind of makes like it, people just get crazy over it because it's not necessarily love. It's more of lust and it's more of a need, uh, a need of this thing rather than a need or pursuit of an actual partner. It's just basically trying to own this idol as yourself as 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 it's a part of yours you know like you're trying to say this is mine she is mine even though she's not she's a person now the audience also begins to question it as the plot comes to a head at the final showdown between her and her stalker to get a little bit more deep uh, to get into a little bit more detail um so me mania is basically beginning to rape uh mima and then mima basically just as she is almost getting raped, gets a hammer and then smashes Mimania in the head. Mimania gets up and a little whimper comes out of his mouth as he finally falls and dies. And right as Mima is looking down at the slain body of her stalker and possible rapist, the lights turn on and the cameras stop rolling as we see a crowd of applause congratulating her. Obviously, none of this happened. Mimania was not there, and neither were everyone else. But it did happen to us, and it did happen to Mima. And I think just and and I'll get I'll touch a little bit more as to what what it means by it happened to us. Um, but it's just so fascinating that even a scene like that just concludes with just people who weren't there in the first place just applauding 
and being congratulatory. Um, it just makes the person think, okay, now I can't trust anything that goes on in this movie. Um, and I think that was just, it was just done so well. Um, because later as he goes, as she goes back, the body of Mimania is not there. The, there is a theory that Mimania, of course, doesn't exist. The, of course, there is like an actual um, security guard there, but Mimania himself is just a figment of Mima's imagination. And um, I just think that's overall fascinating. Now, as the film continues, Mima begins to question who she is. Existentialism and the internet... <laughs> Well, they do make a great pair now, don't they? We've talked about this with the Doomer episode, um, and we will be talking about just a little bit of um, kind of the psychology of what exactly social media does. But um, just to touch on it a bit, social media, uh, and and at least now, if, if we were to contextualize the film, uh, like I said, you know, it is, a, it is contextual horror with the pop um, community. Let's just change that context to now and let's talk about social media because obviously the big thing in the movie is what is the difference between your life and the life that you present other people with and at this point it was the beginning of the internet when she finds out you know this like blog about some person talking as though they were her you know um it was a big it was a big thing back then and i feel like now that everyone has it it's so much bigger and broader and it, and if anything, the message is a lot more re- uh, relevant now. Um, so it's pretty interesting because in the movie, of course, she has to deal with who is she? Is she Mima Kirigoe or is she Mima from Cham? Um, and that's actually just something that she, did, that she just deals with all the way until the end of the movie. She has to figure that out to the point where she ends up reading the diary entries and convincing herself that that did happen and somehow she just forgot when in reality, none of that ever happened. And it could be the same with social media. The things that we post aren't are reflective of who we are, yes, but are they actually us? Because some people might look at our posts and then think one thing about ourselves and then the actual person who we are are completely different. We can't put our entire lives on the internet and we can't put an entire person's personality and their life on the internet. There's a, there's an episode of Black Mirror, uh, Be Right Back. I can't necessarily remember what season, I'm pretty sure it was season two, episode one or two, um, but it was, it was really great and it also kind of talks about this where um, one person uh, dies and then uh, their significant other tries to kind of basically reanimate them um, using their social media feed as a kind of uh, personalized AI. Um, and I think that's so fascinating, but at the, at the very end, we figure out that, no, you can't replicate someone just by reading all their tweets uh, because who they are on the internet is different from who they are in real life. And that's made apparent here. And I think everyone knows that. And I think everyone can know that um, if they haven't seen it already. As I had said before, um, let's compare this to Mima's room. She just begins to believe what she's reading as to be her real life and how the stalker views her as something that she isn't, only how she lets others see her as. And that's basically the big thing about Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. It's that we choose selectively what we want others to see of us. If we hang out with, let's say, 20 friends, we might just take a picture of five friends, post it, and that's it. Um, When in reality, that isn't who we are. That isn't who we know, uh, at least entirely. 
it's just it's such an interesting um comparison now at least it's so interesting how just that understanding like who you are now and i feel like if anything youtubers um and um twitch streamers and uh, basically anyone who has some kind of big presence on the internet deals with this type of thing where they're like am i being honest when i record these videos am i being myself when i edit these or am i being myself when i'm you know playing the games or am i just putting on a, a facade just for just for the people who are watching that's a problem that many people deal with it's it's basically struggling with your own identity and struggling with your existence basically saying is this what i'm going to be remembered as and is that even me is that actually a good representation of who i am and most of the time the answer is no now let's talk a little bit about the soundtrack now the soundtrack I'm going to be playing a little bit of the soundtrack throughout this episode. If you guys hear some music in the back, that is the soundtrack from Perfect Blue. And as if you guys have heard it already, it is genuinely terrifying. And half of it is split into nice pop-sounding music, while the other four are suspenseful instrumental songs that chill us to the bone. Now, those four songs are Mima's theme, Rumi's theme, or Virtual Mima's theme, uh, Uchida's theme, or Mimania's theme, and Nightmare. Now, a lot of people would speculate that writing these songs after character names, of course, that um, Mima would have Mima's theme, and Virtual Mima would have Rumi's theme, and then Mimania would have Uchida's theme. But what about Nightmare? Now, as I'd said, people would speculate that it's since it's character names, Nightmare is our theme the viewer it's actually pretty fascinating that we have our own theme song because we are experiencing everything the exact same time as mima we're experiencing it and the delusions and we begin to question what in the movie is real what isn't and we are included with the music it is all for us we are also going through these delusions and we are also questioning what is reality and what isn't um, and I think if you basically just include the viewer that much where you basically subconsciously listen to the song and then hear it again and again and again thinking, oh, this is, you know, for us, this is for us to understand. I just think that's, uh, that if anything, that's including the audience in a very great way. Now, uh, this also gets a little bit touchy, but um, we, we're going to be talking about dissociative identity disorder, and a lot of people do talk about it uh, in regards to this movie. Um, the first time this had been used, of course, though, is um, Psycho, uh, uh, 1959, uh, Alfred Hitchcock and Robert Block. Uh, this is kind of the first instance in which uh, multiple personality disorder or dissociative identity disorder uh, was kind of viewed into the mainstream. But of course, it was already in a negative light as this serial killer and all this kind of stuff. And it's used again in this film. And obviously, it's not just to say, oh, if you have a mental illness, you will start killing. Well, that... Uh, of course, that's not true. Some people who have dissociative identity disorder use it as a coping mechanism or have it as a coping mechanism because of, uh, let's say, post-traumatic stress disorder or anything like that. It is something that um, their mind does to deal with the stress that they have or deal with uh, a lot of the anxieties that they fear. So I'm not necessarily saying that they are using this in a sense to strike fear, but um, I think I might make an entire other Nighthawks episode discussing this, but I think 
that I I just can't go through this episode without uh, mentioning it at least once. I mean, because it's like so important to the plot. You know, at the very end, it turns out that Rumi, Mima's manager, turned out to be uh, the killer the whole time and actually believes that she is Mima, that she's this perfect version of Mima. And I think I forgot to mention in the plot synopsis, which is strange, but Rumi actually used to be a pop idol. Um, But she kind of just fell into obscurity and just became Mima's manager instead. And I feel like, of course, her uh, dealing with her not having any attention is to replace Mima or basically believe that she is Mima and to the point where she ends up almost killing her. However, with dissociative identity disorder, it also still touches on the subject of identity. Um, whether, you know, we could just go online and ask and act one way and then just turn off the camera and then we're acting a completely different way. I mean, is that, is it, is it like that really? Um, for the majority of the time, for all the time, for none of the time, I mean, how many YouTubers actually put a hundred percent of their personality onto the videos? Um, and how many people just, you know, don't, and they put on this character, and one character, one person comes to mind, um, and I don't necessarily want to name them, um, but, uh, one YouTuber does come to mind, and I'm thinking that, um, they have this character of the very childlike man, and they're very, um, uh, fun, and they're very, you know, excited, and, and, and random, and that's kind of the appeal of his videos, uh, of course, at the time, uh, back then, when a lot of the viewers, uh, that, you know, watched him were younger and they were into that kind of stuff. But of course, after some um, scandals that had been released about him, he still continued to do that type of content. And well, he kind of faded into obscurity now. And if anything, if he had just put a little bit more of himself into those videos, I think that he would have been fine. Um, but he didn't, and he continued this facade of this character that he was playing, and it ultimately just led to his downfall. And I think that's just, that's horrible, but if anything, it's a great learning experience to just understand that, you know, sometimes if you do have a character online, it's always good to just show who you really are sometime or, or, or another. Just And another uh, great YouTuber, and now a musician, uh, I would say, uh, is uh, George Miller. He was Filthy Frank, and of course that was a character that he played, but of course he didn't like that, and so instead of just falling into this depression and this madness that he would have, he just continued to use YouTube kind of since, I mean, he was already pretty popular. He used YouTube as kind of a launching, as kind of a launch pad for his musical career. Uh, since he had a lot of followers there, he would also have a lot of followers when he started music, and he did, and it gained popularity, and now he's a really big name uh, in music. As I said, it, it just shows if you put your real life personality into um, the internet or into the, the your following, I guess, then maybe they are to understand you better, respect you better, and, and we can show just those are two examples of ones who did and then ones who didn't. And what had happened is that one had their career basically uh, driven down to the ground and then the other one had their career launched into something better than they could have ever imagined. But it still begs the question, is the, is the George Miller, the Joji that we see the Joji that is behind the scenes. Most people would argue yes. Um, with their social media posts, we kind of see little glimpses of what their life is like, but is that actually what their life is like, or do they just film that and then post it, and then the rest of the day is just 
normal. You keep on questioning not only yourself but others into thinking, is this reality? Is social media reality? And in my opinion, I think it can be, but I think it won't be. I don't think it will anytime soon. I don't think it will be this kind of haven of you can express yourself uh, the actual way that you are on this uh, site because I feel like no matter what, you're always posing as someone else, as something else, um, more interesting, more attractive, or just that doesn't exist, that doesn't have a life, and it's just these text posts or anything like that. I think it's fascinating to just think about that type of thing, but before we go on to that, uh, now I want to talk about the pop industry. Before we continue, I want to say that I did not want to make an ad read for this episode, and instead I encourage any of my listeners who are uh, having a difficult time with depression and suicidal thoughts to please contact the suicide hotline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. The number is also down in the description of this week's episode. Please take time to consider your options. You matter to me, and you matter to the people in your life. Also, if you know anyone who may be going through some difficult times, please direct them to this hotline or just talk to them. But always know that there is help, and you can help too. Pop idol life. Even beginning to think about this uh, is actually starting to just make me a little uh, bummed out. Uh, This is some pretty serious stuff. I mean... Jesus, I can't believe this is still going on. Um, And I'm not necessarily saying that I'm against it all. I'm just saying that the movie talks a lot about things that we probably wouldn't even consider when we think about the pop idols. Um, Now, of course, big pop pop idol names, um, at least uh, J-pop, K-pop, everyone thinks, you know, BTS, uh, Blackpink, uh, J-pop, I'm not sure if they're as popular. Uh, But uh, J-pop actually... um, is fascinating because they actually kind of started it back in the 60s and then it just became this big thing um, where there were these small artists who tried to make it big. Uh, you know, they have little gigs and that they spend all their money on and then just go home and they fade into obscurity, uh, which now is kind of, that's that's been a thing in Japan all the way, you know, from the 60s. Um, and now it's kind of becoming a more relatively popular, if not just more um, documented thing that is going on in Korea with, you know, the little shows in public and whatnot. Um, basically, K-pop, J-pop, it's just pop music made by a group or an artist that um, is, and I say manufactured in the way that they are basically prepared in life, that they are, they have a contract that they, that basically says, you know, how they live their life. They're basically into that, and then they are out into the public as this pure, k-pop or j-pop artist and people listen to their music and then people you know want to join them in meeting greets and gift giving stuff and that is basically what it is it's just this idol who people listen to and people basically just spend a lot of their time and invest a lot of their money into now it is difficult being a pop idol because your entire fan base is constantly looking at you believe it or not k-pop idols have no privacy you can search up k-pop um, K-pop person or K-pop idol meeting fan, and there's a picture I um, K- 
can't necessarily find it, but it's just of a fan, the K-pop artist, and in the background, you just see nothing but hundreds and hundreds of fans at the window looking into this restaurant onto the other side just to get a glimpse of this one K-pop idol. Yeah, you don't have privacy, especially now that they're also starting live streams, that K-pop idols are now beginning to stream anytime they're free just to have some kind of interaction with the fans. It's now become a 24-7 thing where they don't have any privacy, they don't have any time to themselves. And you may be just questioning why. why. Why is this a thing, especially in Japan and Korea? Because in America, we don't necessarily have those kinds of idols, but in, in you know, just... Japanese, Korean, Chinese, it's very popular there. And the thing is that they have ideas of what you have to look like. And in Japan, there's also just a large need of pop idols ever since the 60s. Once it started, everyone just kind of needed someone to just look up to. And many people know that it is fake. Many people know that it is a character. And that's from both parties, not only the people that are the idols, but also the people who follow the idols. They understand these are people that dress in a costume, and they put on a show. This is a show, uh, and they know that. Um, however, Perfect Blue shows that what if they didn't and instead chose not to believe it? What would that person do? What would that drive someone to do? Or even thinking about um, not only Uchida, but uh, Rumi. Uh, what if the industry spat someone out? How would they react? Um would they yearn for it as much as you know Rumi did to the point where they would murder people? And this has happened before. Um, but let's just continue um, kind of analyzing what exactly the K-pop industry is because this is just a rabbit hole in and of itself. You just go deeper and deeper and it just gets worse and worse and you just start questioning your entire reality and that's horrible. Now, again, a little bit more analysis is what makes this kind of terrifying. I don't necessarily just want to present all these facts without some kind of analysis. Uh, I think that thinking about that, kind of being reliant on an industry or even having no privacy, there's, there's things like that that um, fear that, that make us you know, fearful. Not only just fearful, but probably angry because, of course, um, most of my listeners are probably Americans. Uh, you know, the biggest thing that we have is that in you know, uh, 1984, of the whole anti um, constant stur- surveillance and always just kind of being by yourself. I think now, of course, with social media and you know, li- like I said, live streaming, everything like that, you barely have a moment uh, that you're that is not private, um, which is interesting, um, but effectively scary. Um, it goes into that fear of I need what I need, but you're taking everything from me. Um, and I think, like I said, it also goes into control, as I, I think I said in the last episode. Um, basically being able to control what position you are in. Um, and basically in, in K-pop or in J-pop, you don't have control over your life or, or whatever position in life that you are in. And that is also effectively scary. And seeing that through the lens of the movie to the point where she starts questioning her own reality and just accepting what people are saying about her... That is scary because she is losing control. She's losing grip and you don't want her to because that might mean that you have to. And we do sometimes throughout the movie. It gets horrifyingly confusing to the point where you can't even understand what is reality and what isn't. As I said, control. People want control of our lives that we have no control over um, and that other people just 
are just controlling, and that Mima has to repeat line after line of the show. Um, basically, her line is, who are you? Who are you? And she's trying to trying to f- get that into her head before she, you know, starts acting. Basically, just that kind of, that scene is kind of just symbolic of her just saying what she has to say, even if it's still fabricated. She's an actress, but when she's in distress, she has no director. Now, the Korea Herald um, published a uh, an article in November 2018 about the harsh reality for many people in Japan, Korea, and everywhere where they just basically anywhere that they have idols, their contracts basically say that they are not allowed to date anyone just to keep up appearances rather than just, you know, being themselves. So sometimes these contracts would go on for seven years and they're signed on when they're 18. So what is that? That's when they're um, 25, I think. Basically, you can't date anyone. You can't be seen publicly with anyone else of the opposite gender or the same gender, blah, blah, blah. And this kind of became a big issue when um, one girl in Korea, uh, her sex life was basically um, exposed to everyone and her entire career tanked. Nobody wanted to hire her. Nobody wanted her at all. Everyone just said, you know what? You're not, you're, you broke the contract's broken we no longer want you because they want that illusion of purity and perfection that these girls obviously can't have and they they can't be because they're just regular people they are just regular people they you know they shit and they fart and they do all these shit that you know people do but they can't be seen doing that because that's what the industry wants the industry doesn't want just a regular girl they want this pure girl who will do nothing wrong, who will always stay by their side. Rojack Daily also um, published an article in 2017 talking about the no privacy issue. Now, this is just a big issue, not only in the K-pop industry and in the Japanese pop industry, but it's a bigger issue as in they control what they eat. They control their entire schedules. Contracts are binding these people not only to be seen under the eyes of their fans for the majority of their formative years, but have little to no privacy. They are told to abide by strict diets. They are told to have these specific workout regimens, and they are told that they can't be seen with other people in a specific manner, or else the contract is void. And if the contract is void, so is their career, so is their relevance, and so is their image, which is very important in Korean and Japanese culture. When looking at this, it makes sense, and it all goes back to control. Losing control of our lives is one of the biggest fears of ours. When we hear that, we turn at the sound of basically no free will, but it's a harsh reality to some, and the majority of those in the idol industry in Asia. It's suffocating to say the least, and most people can get through it. Most people understand it. Most people, if anything, they just accept it. But that's just the image that we see. We There might be more behind the little idol persona that might be going on, and there have been many. A few people who have lost their lives to due to the stresses of their careers or the change of it. Kim Ji-hoo was one of these people who, in his suicide note, explained his disdain towards the life that he had been, quote-unquote, living. Not only that, he also came out as gay and received a lot of prejudice because of this. And, of course, he had killed himself. And a larger, more notable name is jong Hyu, and he also committed suicide and left a note about his depression and his deteriorating mental health. He was a big name in the K-pop industry, and it brought some light onto the importance of mental health in the Asian communities 
which was not a priority. But to think that they would have to kill themselves first in order to begin this conversation. Almost 50 years after it had started, only now, recently, after the death of a large notable K-pop idol, did they begin talking about mental health? Did they begin discussing mental health? It pains me to talk about these kinds of subjects. It really does. These people had the potential to live a normal and regular life, but because of the culture that they signed themselves up for, and I'm not blaming them, and but because of the culture that they decided to sign themselves up for, they ultimately ended their lives. And I'm not blaming them for this. This isn't their fault. This is the industry's fault for having this facade of being something you so desperately want to get into, but once you're in, you're just looking for any way to get out, even if that means your life. I don't think that these people were weak, and the other many, many smaller names, I don't think that they were weak. I just think that their strength had finally reached an end, and they didn't know what to do. Now, let's talk a little bit about more contextual horror. Constant surveillance and the K-pop industry. Now, I think I've already talked about it, live streams and whatnot, but uh, what's interesting is that the K-pop industry is starting to take over the United States. Now, these are real people, and sometimes while they're up performing, we forget that because all we see are cute little guys waving around their light sticks when in reality they just go out and get groceries just like the rest of us, having fears of being forgotten, having dreams of what they want to do with their life, but if it wasn't for their idolship. We can't see them doing anything else that we don't see them doing. As much as we're afraid of our freedoms being taken away, we take others' freedoms away. Or at least, we support it. Now, I'm not saying that America has anything to do with continuing this K-pop industry kind of thing. But I think that the thing is that we're so desensitized to just celebrities and singers. Just, you know, just go on tour and then sing and dance and then just go back and then practice and then come and then chillax and then work on your next album and then album and then tour it's very different in the K-pop industry because what it is is that they not only go and have tours, but then they also have handshaking events and then they also have live streams that they have to do and then they also have um, dinners and they also have gift-giving events and whatnot. They are constantly busy, if anything, in Korea, constantly keeping up this image, this public image of who they are or who they want to be. And then even when they walk out, no matter what they're wearing, everyone is going to take pictures of it. Everyone's going to be talking about it. So they basically, not only do they run what they eat, and not only do they also have to think about what they do and the regimens and whatnot, they also have to think about, you know, their their clothes that they have to wear that day, what they look like. It's so important to them and it's so important to the industry because they are reflective of that industry and they're reflective of the company that they work for. And I feel like there is some sort of knowledge to that in um, America. And Americans do, of course, um, applaud the K-pop industry when they are at their highest, when they 
you know, work very hard for the things they do and actually, you know, make it to number one. But America also has a a habit of just looking at half of the picture and accepting it, while the other half we just ignore. And the other half is that people have killed themselves over this. People have died over the things that they've gone through, over the things that this industry brings upon them. And if I sound heated, I am, because that is horrible. People have died, and people are still going about accepting this. We say, hey, talk about mental illness. And what do they do? They talk about it, and that's it. Have, has their contracts ever been revised? We don't know. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. But it's it's still something that should not stop. This conversation about making their lives comfortable and, and, and whatnot, is, it should be something important. It should be talked about constantly, yet it's not. It's important to them. It's important to Japan because people kind of just have something to look forward to. And yeah, it may sound predatory in nature and it may sound just very strange how there's these 40, 50-year-old men or something like that just following these 20-year-old girls around. But that's just the appeal that they have. As long as they're not doing anything dangerous, that's just something that is known in Japan and in Korea everyone has probably one idol that they follow because that's just kind of a thing. It's like celebrities, but to a different degree, to a much different degree that we can't really understand. And even comparing it to celebrities might just be a little, you know, too much. I think it, it is vastly different, but it's very difficult for us to understand because it's not a part of our culture. But anyway, at the end of the day, we, as much as we try to support this industry, should also try to understand it more and and basically just try to not i just think it's so difficult because these people are voluntarily doing this and and i mean i'm riled up about it Uh, but that's but that's fine i mean if they voluntarily did it that's their decision but i'm just trying to make sure that they are strong enough and that they can deal with it and most people do and most people can and most people end up being uh, uh, lifelong celebrities throughout their entire life they end up hosting shows and all that type of stuff and that's fine just as long as they're fine in the process just as long as they're keeping their mental health in check and just as long as they're also feeling in control of their life because sometimes when they don't the idle life seems scary but anyway guys thank you so much for listening if you like today's episode please like it and um you can also give us a follow uh we try to post every week um and uh so thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode i hope you guys were just a little chilled and learned something um and with that i hope you guys read something that'll keep you up at night